Galatians chapter 6. We've made it to chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 today. Of course, throughout Galatians, Paul has been has been laboring to to teach us that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, apart from any works that we do, that God justifies the ungodly when they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ is reckoned to their account. That's basic to the gospel. It's fundamental to the message of good news about Jesus, uh, that God, God took our sin and, and laid it upon Christ and takes the righteousness of Christ and reckons it to us when we believe savingly in him. Galatians 5, I, I think Paul has been talking to us about the, the shape of the, the justified life. The shape of the justified life is a life governed by and and led by the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. Uh, The same Christ who lived and died for us now works in us by His Spirit to make us like Himself, to conform us to His very own image. And Paul continues that idea here in Galatians chapter 6 by telling us what true spirituality looks like. And that will be our theme for today. But before we read our passage, let's pause and ask for God's help. Let's pray. Oh Lord, with your word open before us and with your word about to be read and preached, uh, we pray that uh, the risen, glorified, and reigning Christ would minister his word to his people today. We pray that it would be the the voice of the good shepherd himself that we hear this morning and that as we do so we would bring our minds and our hearts and our wills and submit it all to him. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Galatians 6 beginning in verse 1. Let's give attention to God's word. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing... He deceives himself, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. I think one of the most unusual characters in church history is uh, Simeon the Stylite. Simeon lived in the 5th century, um, and what Simeon is known for is he went to the edge of the Syrian desert and constructed a pillar, climbed up on top of it, and then proceeded to live on top of that pillar for the next six years. Imagine that, six years on top of this pole. People came from all around because they thought he was crazy. 
But for Simeon, this was at least his approach to removing himself from the distractions of the world in order to commune with God. And the story of Simeon raises for all of us, I think, an important question. And the question is this, what is true spirituality? For Simeon, it it involved physically separating oneself from worldly distractions and, and others that might hinder us from communing with God. But fast forward to today, and it seems as though just about no one can agree on what constitutes true spirituality. The language of spirituality is very popular in our day, is it not? A lot of people talk about being spiritual. You can go to any bookstore and you can, you can walk into the, the spiritual literature section and find, find uh, uh, well, I should say, so-called, some so-called Christian literature on, uh, on heaven and hell, on demons and angels, on near-death experiences, on short visits to heaven, uh, right alongside of ancient pagan spiritualities. Spirituality, the concept at least of spirituality, is popular in our day. So long, so long at least, as it does not smack of religion. You know that statement that's so popular today, I'm spiritual but not religious. Because spirituality is defined as a private, personal, self-defined pursuit while religion is understood as a, as a public, institutional, rigid thing. And so spirituality is a is very popular concept in our day. And I think, I think one of the reasons spirituality is, is in vogue is because people think that it's whatever they want it to be. It's self-defined. Here's a famous uh, sociologist, Robert Withrow, who says... Growing numbers of Americans piece together their faith like a patchwork quilt. So each person is on their own spiritual journey, taking the things that they like and discarding the things that they don't like. And sadly, it's, it's not very different within the church of Jesus Christ. There's widespread confusion about what true spirituality is. For some... True spirituality is, is really just about, well, you know, personal devotions, personal devos, making sure you get your quiet time with God, a life of prayer, a life of time in God's word. And so the way to be spiritual is to practice what, the, what folks have called the spiritual disciplines. Yeah, for others, spirituality is primarily expressed within, within the church, in uh, certain forms of worship, perhaps, historic forms of worship, or ornate liturgies, or or rituals, Um, perhaps singing the right kind of music accompanied by the right instruments. And still for others, true spirituality is, is understood in terms of having some sort of exciting spiritual experience, you know, miraculous healings, or some kind of powerful encounter with the divine. Some, some folks today even divide the church along these lines. Those who have had these kind of powerful spiritual experiences and those who have not, the, the haves and the have-nots. I think as we look at this passage today, 
we need to see that Paul gives us at least a different way, an entirely different way to think about true spirituality. Because first of all, according to the pluralism of our culture, or contrary to the pluralism of our culture, biblical spirituality is based on a relationship with God, which, which he governs and rules by his word. And so, that, in other words, the spiritual life is not self-defined. It is, it is spirit-governed and spirit-led. And contrary to the thinking of, of many Christians, true spirituality isn't something that we produce with our own methods or, or rituals, for sure. True spirituality is, is cultivated with things like the means of grace, spending time in God's word, being devoted to a life of prayer and fellowshipping with the saints. But we don't produce spirituality. True spirituality is something produced by God the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit can produce authentic spirituality, which, as Paul taught us in Galatians chapter 5, is revealed evidentially in the fruit of the Spirit. But what I want us to see today is that true spirituality is not an individualistic self, well, pursuit of self-fulfillment. Instead, true spirituality flourishes for the sake of others. And true spirituality is inherently, pervasively relational. It begins with a relationship with God. And it is expressed in relation to one another. It's publicly seen, not merely privately experienced. The spiritual life Paul is teaching us here in Galatians 6 is a relational life. It's, 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 it's less like a tree planted in a secret garden and, and more like a tree that blossoms and, and flourishes in a public park. And so, after talking about the fruit of the Spirit back in chapter 5, Paul tells us about what it will look like as brothers and sisters in Christ relate to one another. And we're told three things here about the, the truly spiritual life, the life led by the Spirit. And first of all, then, spiritual people seek to restore one another from sin. And then secondly, we'll see that spiritual people bear others' burdens. That's verse 2. And then in verses 3 through 5, we'll see that spiritual people consider others more important. So let's get started with the first thing. Spiritual people restore one another from sin. Take a look again at verse 1. Uh, brothers. Now you know that word, if, at least if you have the ESV, because it's footnoted every single time. That, that brothers isn't simply addressing the men of the congregation. It, it, it includes the entire fellowship. So you could say brothers and sisters. If anyone, any Christian, is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, notice, notice a few things about that verse. First of all, well, the assumption is that Christians can fall into sin. Christians can get caught in transgressions. Paul has, Paul has already talked to us about the conflict that is on in the Christian life. 
He has talked about the, the desires of the flesh waging war against the desires of the indwelling spirit to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The battle is on in the Christian life. And Paul understands pastorally that there are times in, in, where Christians are seeking to walk in stride with the dictates of the Holy Spirit, where sin will knock us off our stride. There are times when because of our our own weaknesses, we may fall and get caught in sin. Now, it's important to understand, I don't think Paul is talking here about deliberate, habitual patterns of sin. This is talking about a Christian who has, has fallen and they need spiritual help. And so notice Paul, Paul tells us three things here. He tells us what to do, who to do it, who is to do it, and how. And so first of all, what to do. What, what should the goal be when a fellow brother or sister is caught in a transgression? Paul says the goal should be restoration. Restore them, he says. And the word he uses here, it's a, it's a special word. It's a medical word, which means returning something to its former condition. It means uh, setting a, a broken bone or fixing a, so, someone who's out of joint. You could say a Christian caught in transgression is a dislocated believer. Sadly, though, a lot of out-of-joint Christians don't always get the best treatment in the household of God. Sometimes, sometimes they just get ignored. Maybe, maybe, we, maybe we lack the courage to, to go to them and seek their restoration. So instead, we just pretend like the problem isn't there. Or like, a, like a new medical student might do the first time they see a fractured bone sticking out of an arm. And you know they, they need to reach out in order to try to help that person, but out of Timidity, they just can't bring themselves to do it. Well, if that person remains in that physical condition and the bone isn't set straight, you understand that that person will never, will never heal. Something else we see, another way an out-of-joint Christian might be treated is, well, we might never get past the diagnosis. You know, we, we might feel free to make the diagnosis and stand around talking about how disjointed another brother or sister is without actually intending to ever bring real tangible help. So we might say things like, wow, I mean, look at, look at that, look at that bone sticking out. That's awful. Man, I'm so, I'm so thankful. I, I don't have a broken bone that serious. <laughs> you know what that is. It's, it's gossip. It's just self-righteous gossip. Another form of treatment a broken sinner might receive is amputation. But instead of their sin being removed and others seeking to lovingly restore them to a life of faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ, they get amputated. They get cut off. They get disowned by the community and treated like outcasts, harshly scolded by fellow sinners who seem to have forgotten that they are also sinners who stand in moment-by-moment need of God's grace. 
But you see what Paul is teaching us here. A Christian caught in sin does not need to be amputated. They need to be restored. Again, Paul is not talking here about hard-hearted, deliberate, habitual sin. Now, you may go to a person who appears to be caught in a transgression and find that that's in fact where they are. And Jesus has given us a process for dealing with that in Matthew 18. I think what Paul is talking about here, though, is at the beginning of that process, at least, of of going to a brother or sister who's fallen into sin, who needs help in confessing their sin and seeing their sin and finding fresh forgiveness in Christ. Then notice uh, who is to do this. Paul says, you who are spiritual. In other words, the, the rehabilitation of a Christian caught in sin is the job of spiritual Christians. So who are these people? All right, is Paul talking about some elite class in the Christian church? No, I don't, I don't think he is. In a sense, every Christian believer is a spiritual person. Because the moment you believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit dwells in your life and you are a spiritual person from that day on. But there is another sense, I think, in which Paul is speaking here that, well, if we can put it this way, some people are more spiritual than others. They are are more mature. They're further along in their Christian walk. They They are led by and governed by uh, the, the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is, is flourishing in their life. And Paul says, the work of rehabilitation, the work of restoring fallen sinners is the work of such Christians. But think about this with me for a minute. Why, why does this matter? Why does it matter who engages in this restoring work? Why does it need to be people who are, who are spiritual who seek the restoration of a, a person caught in sin. I think there are a lot of things we, we could say there. Well, the first thing we should say is because they understand that what the disjointed Christian needs is not amputation or a self-righteous diagnosis. They need help. They need someone who's going to come alongside of them and, and, and not seek to self-righteously rebuke them, but to bring real grace into the situation. A harsh judgment, a judgmental spirit. I think we, I think we have to say this in light of this passage, is, is really a sign of spiritual immaturity, not spiritual maturity. And the way to restore a, a brother or sister who has fallen into sin, Paul says, is with gentle sensitivity, the grace of gentleness. But also, another reason I think it's important that spiritual people take up this work is the process not only requires gentleness, but a spiritual humility to know one's own vulnerability. You see what Paul says to those seeking the restoration of a fellow believer, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. See, even spiritual people, Paul is saying, even spiritual people who seek to walk daily in step with the Spirit are susceptible to falling into sin. And 
spiritually mature people are profoundly aware of that reality, that the the, the principle that governs their thoughts and their actions and their handling of broken, fallen sinners is there but by the grace of God go I. But I think something that we need to notice, though, is as we look at this passage, in this verse, the ministry of restoration, Paul does not limit it to the elders. He does not limit it here to this is the ministry of session. Yes, they are, of course, involved in an important way in this, in the life of the church. But Paul is saying here a mark of a, of a fellowship of Christ-believing, spirit-led believers is vulnerable sinners going to fellow vulnerable sinners who are caught in sin and seeking their restoration. That makes us, I think, uncomfortable to hear because we live in a cultural, culture of niceness where niceness is defined as never telling anyone that what they're doing is wrong. In Christian circles, we might not use the word niceness. We might use the word gracious, with gracious defined as never talking about sin. But you see, Paul is saying, because we love one another and because we care deeply about the grace of God, there may be need for clear, direct confrontation marked by love, humility, and Christ-like gentleness. And this is something Paul charges the church to do. That's the first thing. Then secondly, spiritual people bear one another's burdens. That's, this is verse 2. Take a look at it with me. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, there's another assumption here. What's the assumption of verse 2? It's that you and I as Christians carry heavy burdens. See assumption here that Christians have weights bearing down upon their hearts and their lives. You know, getting caught in a transgression is, is one burden, but there are many other burdens that can, can weigh people down. A sorrow and Doubts and anxieties and depression and losses and disappointments and disabilities and health concerns and uncertainties about the future and relational breakdowns, uh, marital failures, marriages in shambles. And we can go on and on and on with a thousand other burdens that can weigh us down because we live in a fallen world. There are burdens to bear, Paul is assuming here. And, and sometimes those burdens are so heavy that they have to be shared. Or we're going to get crushed. And so here's, here's how spiritual Christians, spirit-led people, relate and live with one another. They, they share the load. When there's a, when there's a burden too heavy... You know, you don't, you don't simply grit your teeth and get on by yourself. God doesn't intend for you to do that, brothers and sisters. He has provided fellow burden bearers to get underneath the weight with you and walk alongside of you. 
There's a sense in which God is the one who bears our burdens. The Bible speaks that way. God in Christ has already carried the heaviest, greatest burden of all, the weight of our sin and guilt, as Christ carried that heavy crossbeam to Calvary and was crucified for our sins. But was it Psalm 55 tells us to cast all of your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. So how does, raises a question, doesn't it? How does, how does this fit? The Bible telling us to cast all your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. And then here in Galatians 6, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How does that work together? I think it's reminding us that God uses means in bearing the burdens of his people. That casting our our burdens on the Lord does not mean he is the only one with whom we share them. One of the the primary ways then God lightens our load is by giving us brothers and sisters who serve as fellow burden bearers. See, many, many Christians and many unknowingly to others are carrying heavy burdens Burdens too heavy for them to carry on their own. And Paul is saying that we are all called to be fellow burden bearers. So again, Paul is not speaking to a small circle within the church. He is speaking to the congregation. All of us have this responsibility. The whole church is to engage in the work of bearing the burdens of others, in mutually supporting one another in love. Together, everyone helps carry the load. Some do it in prayer. Some do it through ministry and instruction in the Word. Some some might do it in in fellowship, in spending time with someone who's struggling and providing words of comfort and encouragement and counsel. Others might provide help in Practical, tangible ways in providing meals or cleaning someone's house or providing a book that might help in that particular need. You could go on with many, many examples of how we can support one another. But this burden lightning care should happen every time a member of Trinity encounters difficulty, whether it be physical, emotional, or spiritual And the reality is, brothers and sisters, it takes a whole church to do it. And when we do it together, notice what Paul says. We fulfill the law of Christ. No doubt, I think, alluding to Jesus' words in John 13. This new commandment I give you, that you are to love one another, rooted in the moral law. This is one of the ways the second great commandment is fulfilled and carried out in the lives of believers in the way that they love one another. Paul, though, has already labored in Galatians to show us that that we we are forgiven and accepted by God apart from works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. But the question becomes, what kind of faith is a true saving faith? Paul said, Earlier in Galatians, you remember this verse, 
neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith that works by love. Faith that works by love. Another way we could put this is, it is no saving faith that does not register itself in a life of love. James says, faith without works is dead. So it's, I think, a convicting thing that Paul is saying here. Because, yes, it's Christ alone who saves. And and faith receives the, we talked about this in Sunday school, faith receives the justifying grace of Christ. But a faith that takes hold of a Christ that justifies us freely, apart from any works that we do, is also a faith that takes hold of a Jesus who is utterly committed to transforming our lives so that we look more and more like him and so that we love more and more like him. And so a sincere faith will be expressed in love and a chief way that this love is shown is in bearing the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That leads me to at least ask myself two questions, and I hope you'll ask them with me. First, am, am am I sensitive enough to see a fellow brother or sister carrying a burden that they cannot carry alone? Am I, am I able to see beyond myself? Maybe another way of asking the question, am I willing to see beyond myself? It's so easy for us, isn't it, as sinners to get tied up with ourselves in our own personal agendas and our own personal concerns. And and, and yes, beyond that, our own personal burdens that we have. So do we have the spiritual sensitivity to see the burdens that others are carrying and that are, they are weighed down by? A, a second question I think I, I need to ask myself is, am, am I willing to let someone else come underneath my load, and carry it along with me. In other words, am I, am I willing and ready to receive help from brothers and sisters who want to come alongside of me and be fellow burden bearers? Now, let's face it, we live, we live in a country that praises self-reliance. And in many ways, self-reliance can be a virtue, But self-reliance can also run afoul and it can lead into prideful self-dependence. And so I think an important question we we ought to ask ourselves in our context is, are we willing to let others get under our burdens and help us along? Or are are we putting up fences? Are we saying, you know, you can come this far and stop. That's it. There's a third thing I want us to think about in this passage Uh, Spiritual people consider others more important. This is a a tricky few verses that have varying interpretations, but let me try to do my best in how I've come to understand them. You know, let me start this way. You know, the, the the way that we treat others actually depends a lot on how we think about ourselves. 
if you've ever thought about that. If we think we're really something, if we think we're really special, we're going to see that it's, we're going to, we're going to begin to think it's beneath us to help people who are in need, to help people who have heavy burdens. I think it's beneath our, our dignity to try to help people because we're self-absorbed, we're self-centered. In fact, in the ancient world, in the context in which Paul was writing, helping other people who were in need was seen as demeaning. And so bearing others' burdens, just as it did, I think, in the ancient world, confronts our own self-centeredness and pride because the only way to do it properly is to count the needs of others as more important than your own. To see others as more important than yourself. To, to really count others as more important than, than yourself is going to require real sacrifice. It might require rearranging your schedule and cutting things out that you wanted to do in order to serve other people. It might require the sacrificing of our own resources in helping those who are carrying heavy burdens. It will require putting the needs of others before our own. And I think Paul is aware that a high estimation of oneself can get in the way of bearing the burdens of others. So take a look at what Paul says to those who think there's something special and thus too important to serve others. He says the reality is, Paul's, in, Paul's not afraid to get in your face. <laughs> the reality is you are actually nothing, is what Paul says. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He's saying the people who really think they're something are actually fooling themselves. You know, today in, in, in pop psychology, one of the buzzwords is, is self-esteem. Well, if I can use that word for a minute, here's where biblical self-esteem at least begins. You're nothing. You know, in and of yourself, you are nothing. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that God did not freely give to you? In and of ourselves, we are nothing and have nothing to boast about. And so for anything at all, it's because God made us and God has remade us by redeeming us in Christ Jesus. And so I think the way to avoid thinking that we are something we are not is to see ourselves as God sees us. And I think that's what Paul is getting at in verse 4 where he says, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Uh, comparing oneself with others is, is, is odious. It either results in discouragement because we think that others are more spiritual than we are, or it results in pride because we think we're more spiritual than they are. And Paul's warning against both, and instead he's saying... We ought to test ourselves against the only standard that counts. And that's God's standard. I think, in other words, Paul is calling Christians to you know, what, the, what the Puritans called self-examination. 
Not, not legalistic, introspective, navel-gazing. But an honest assessment of oneself. Our gifts, our shortcomings, our strengths, our weaknesses, our glaring weaknesses. Because that will help us do what Paul talks about back in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He says, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You know, knowing how we measure up to God's standard will help us bear one another's burdens. Uh, the people, if I, if I can put it this way, the people who, who want another, the people who serve others most effectively are those who have an honest awareness of their own strengths and weaknesses. And testing ourselves enables us to, in the language of verse 4, boast in what we do. Obviously, Paul is not saying that God wants us to go around bragging about what we do or our accomplishments. What he means is that we, we should be confident in who we are in Christ Jesus. The particular gifts that he's given us to serve one another. If I could put it this way, comfortable in one's own skin in Christ. Our actions meet God's standard as they do when they are, when they are done in faith for the glory of God according to God's word for the furtherance of Christ's kingdom. I think Paul is saying we can take pleasure and the reality that God takes delight in those things. And Paul adds this comment though in, in, in verse 5. For each will have to bear his own load. That sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Because back in verse 2 he said, bear one another's burdens. And now he's saying here in verse 5, each will have to bear his own load. So which is it, Paul? Bearing one another's burdens or each person bearing their own load? It helps us to understand, I think, what Paul is saying to, to see that Paul uses two different Greek words here. The first one referring to burdens is the imagery that would help us is, 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 is cargo being loaded onto a freighter. You know, this heavy load that we cannot carry ourselves. And then the second word refers more to something like a, like a, like a day pack or a backpack that you might wear. So when it comes, I think, I think this is what Paul is, is saying here. It says each of us have to carry his own load. I think it's talking about the weight of our personal responsibility before God. I think, I think Paul is saying that mutual accountability and support must be balanced with a sense, a right sense of personal responsibility before God. You know, God, has, God has given each of us a unique set of of gifts for your situation in life. And you, know, you, will, you will not have to answer for what you might have done with someone else's gifts. But you and you alone will have to answer for the way you carry the responsibilities that God has given to you and entrusted to you. We will, we will give an account, Paul is reminding us here, for our calling, for our gifts, and for our obedience. So do your work, Paul is saying. 
Do it without comparing yourself to, to anyone else. And do it well because one day you will give an account for what you have done and what you have left undone. And so here, here's, a, here's a description of biblical spirituality. At least in three respects or three aspects. Spiritual people seek the restoration of fallen brothers and sisters. Spiritual people bear one another's burdens and spiritual people consider others more important than themselves. So let's, let's bring it home to, to this, this fellowship. What kind of, what kind of lives do, do we live with each other? And what, what evidence do our relationships with one another, one another give that we are justified, spirit-led, spirit-indwelled believers? What shows that we, that we care enough to restore fallen sinners and tangibly bear one another's burdens and consider one another more important than ourselves? These are the questions that this passage, I think, raises for us because Galatians teaches us that the justified life, the spiritual life, is evidenced in relational terms. And we can't get around that. The, the reality that we have trusted in Christ and that the Spirit of Christ lives in us is evidenced in, in a way that is manifested in our relationships with one another. As Jesus himself put it, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples in the way that you love one another. The way you help one another and the way you bear one another's burdens. And the way you consider others more important than yourselves. This passage begins, brothers, it begins by reminding the church that the church is the family of God. Household of faith. Children of the living God called in unity and harmony together. Learning slowly to treat one another in light of who they are in Christ Jesus. Learning how to treat one another as God in Christ has already treated us. After all, isn't it, isn't it God in Christ who in the greatest way imaginable sought to restore transgressors caught in sin? Isn't it God in, in Christ who was, who was willing to bear the infinite weight of our sin on the cross? And isn't it God in Christ? I think of the language here of, of Philippians chapter 2. Is it, isn't it Jesus who considered others more important than himself? He was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, a slave. And he did so unto death. May God make us more like himself. A fellowship, a church that is all about restoration seeking, fellow burden bearing, considering others more important than themselves. Because by doing so, God of grace is glorified. Let's pray together.
Father, Father, forgive us. Forgive us of thinking so highly of ourselves and so little of others. And forgive us for not bearing the burdens of others because we're too wrapped up in ourselves. Please, by your spirit, by your grace, would you, Lord Jesus, teach us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill your commandment. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.